Welcome to Beyond Birth and Death, the podcast for death-positive, birth-curious people looking beyond the medicalization of these sacred rites of passage. We are after a deeper understanding of the physiological, spiritual, and emotional components of birth and death. Together, we will consider the links between birthing and dying. Here are your hosts, Katherine Hobbs and Katarina Mineo. And welcome back to episode two of Beyond Birth and Death. And today we are going to be discussing medicalized birth and death. We're also going to go into alternative options. So if you know that a medicalized birth or death is not for you, we're going to lay out some different options, different ways that you can make your birthing or dying experience fit your needs and your community and your family's needs. So Kat, what is a medicalized birth? So when we're talking about a medicalized birth, we typically think of a woman goes into labor, maybe her water breaks at home, or maybe she has her waters broken in the hospital, but she eventually makes her way to a hospital where she births with the help of an OBGYN, potentially a midwife if you're in the UK or Canada. Um, Maybe she brings a doula with her, but throughout her birth process, medical interventions are used. So that could look like anything from IV fluids to telemonitoring to Pitocin, all the way up to a C-section. What are the effects of a medicalized birth? So the effects of a medicalized birth really vary from woman to woman and what interventions she opts for. But, you know, we hope that the, the end result and the effect of a medicalized birth is a happy, healthy baby and a happy, healthy mama. However, there are different interventions which have more profound effects on a birth. So if we're talking about something as simple as IV fluids, those IV fluids can dilute hormones, which might in some circumstances, make a woman more likely to opt for things like Pitocin, which can really get labor going quite quickly and quite aggressively, which then might lead her to opt for an epidural because the pain is so intense from these strong back-to-back contractions. Or there can be um, what they call a slow labor. And we know that especially first-time mothers, labors can last several days in a physiological birth. Um, But in a hospital, that's rarely allowed. So we see things like cesareans happening. And a cesarean is a major surgery. So the woman can have surgical complications. She can have, you know, less time with her baby because she needs to go to recovery or her baby needs to go to the NICU. And, you know, we hope in every circumstance that these these things are rare. And unless the woman has gone in with that on her birth plan, that they don't happen, but they frequently do. So uh, for every action that you take, there's an equal and opposite reaction. We know that. And we're hopeful that the, the equal and opposite reaction is one step closer to a, a healthy baby and a healthy mama and a birth that is comfortable for everyone. Um, but sometimes that just isn't the case. I had a friend of mine who had the Gucci symbol tattooed on her hip and she had to have a cesarean section 
and the doctor didn't line the tattoo back up again so she just had like random arcs on her hip oh no I mean that (laughs) (laughs) any sort of tattoo where there's surgery I mean we know that can happen and we oh gosh that's not anything you ever want to happen but of all the things that could go wrong I guess a cosmetic thing is like at the lesser end of the spectrum but poor thing I guess just as a woman don't get a tattoo on your hip yeah if you're planning on ever potentially having a medicalized birth that could end in a c-section maybe avoid that but you know like that's like a crazy thing to think about you're 18 years old or younger getting your first tattoo that's not something most women think of like I could one day get a cesarean and need to have this area clear for incisions like wow yeah that's true so what is the history of a medicalization of a birth so we really saw the the medical field start entering births in the early 1900s and prior to that it was normal for the majority of women to birth at home maybe they would have other women in the community with them to attend them maybe they would have a midwife but going into a hospital as the norm to birth just was not a thing until the early 1900s. And so we have the industrial revolution, we have medical technology catching up with, with people's needs, which is fantastic in most cases, but they, they co-op birth a little bit, something that is not inherently medical and turn it into a commodity or something to be bought you by the birth that you want at the hospital. So we see women start to go into hospitals to have their babies. And at the time, women were often put in twilight sedation. Um, We see the beginnings of women being placed on their backs to birth because it's easier for the OB to examine them. Um, Things like forceps were used, which are not inherently gentle or comfortable. Episiotomies are happening more often because women are birthing on their backs. So it's like a domino effect. You have one one intervention leads to another, leads to another, and it kind of can spiral out of control for some people. So that becomes the norm. And then in the 50s and 60s, we see another shift where women now have more flexibility in the birth that they want. They can go to the hospital and have a natural birth, but you line that up with the women's rights movement and women wanting to get back to work afterwards. And I think it was something that was necessary at the time that women asked for things that would make their birth easier, like a um, epidural or an episiotomy rather than having these long drawn out labors. And I think for a lot of women, it was kind of like this, look what I can do. I can, I can use science to have the birth that I want because I am a modern woman and just women in my family who I've spoken to reflect that opinion. And I think that it's really interesting that the way society views women and the way women feel about themselves almost always ties into the birth they have. So now we have, we're into the 2000s, we're two decades in, and a lot of women are starting to go back and opt for a more traditional birth, uh, a home birth, an unattended birth, a birth center birth or still going to the hospital, but just planning to have a natural birth at the hospital. And I think we see this ebb and flow that 
we see the more medicalized births at times when women were really fighting for their rights. So we have like the suffragette movement in the early 1900s. We have uh, women's rights and equality in the 60s and 70s. And then here we are in the in the 2000s. And I think as women start to feel a little bit more secure in their position in society, and I'm speaking so broadly, I know that this is not the case for every woman. I know that this is not um, everyone's experience, but I think as as a culture, as we we begin to feel more secure in our place in society, we also begin to feel more secure in the births that we want to have. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So Katerina, when we're talking about medicalized birth, we know that there are lasting side effects um, from whatever you choose for the mother and the baby. But when we talk about a medicalized death, we know what the end game is. So there's not as much at stake or there appears not to be as much at stake. So can you walk us through that? Well, a medicalized death is really just any form of medical treatment that con- that is reducing the pain and suffering. And it is usually misconstrued that it's speeding up the progression of death, but that's not it at all. It's just easing pain and suffering. And the patient's already dying, so we really don't have a risk of um, messing anything up. So there's not really going to be any lasting effects. The only downside that really that I've through research that I've come to see is that people might not be necessarily fully aware of what's going on and that can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing because it could be a good thing because they might not be fully aware that they're also dying but they could also not be aware that maybe their loved ones are in the room or maybe that they're surrounded by love and that they're around so many people. So it's really hard to say there's a good side and there's a downside and then there's a right way and there's a wrong way to do that. You could do small doses of um, medication to ease a death or you could do high doses. And it again goes back to how you would want to die. So when someone's having a medicalized death, if they are at a point where they're on morphine and can't necessarily communicate to you where their pain levels are and what feels best to them, how do we know that we're giving them a good death or that we're falling short? Oh my God, I can't believe that you just brought up good death. That is actually a point that I'm going to make later on um, when I talk about the Black Plague, which is going to be super fun. Stay tuned. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The problem with that is that you really don't know. You don't. It's extremely difficult to communicate and to express what a dying person really wants or would like to have with their death. And that is why it is so important to talk about this and to have a plan and just like when you birth you come in and you have a birth plan you have it written up you have exactly what you need we need to bring death more into light so that then we can start talking about these things and have it be less taboo where when you are lucid when you are able to make these decisions for yourself 
you can tell the doctors exactly what you want. You can tell the doctors and they will be able to look out for these signs so that then you can tell them exactly what you want. You need to come into death exactly with a plan and knowing what you want and not being afraid of it. So when we're talking about this, we're assuming that someone has lived a long life, maybe has a disease progression and knows that death is imminent. So for someone who, using myself as an example, I have legal documents drawn up outlining what I want for my death and burial and everything. So my living will essentially. So can you talk about why that's important if for people our age in our 20s to have a death plan, essentially? Well, I mean, the fact of the matter is life is short. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know when it's going to happen. I mean, my own mother died at 60 years old. And even though we knew it was going to happen, we had no idea that it was going to happen that soon or that quickly. And that's downside to not really talking about this and to not really bringing any of this to light is that something could happen and because we don't plan for that we don't have any say in what happens to us when we do die so we get this set sterilized basically form that you get to check off that the doctors automatically administer to you Immediately so, when someone dies. In that situation, who who was the responsible party? Who was the person checking off those forms for you? Usually the doctor. The doctor? Okay. What about? Because most people don't have these forms. They don't have the list of the what they would like to be done. Okay. So if, I mean, obviously for a minor, it would be the parent. But if an adult is going through this, is it the next of kin? So the, the husband or wife or the, the closest living relative who gets to make some of these decisions? Typically, yes. Um, usually it is always the next of kin or whoever is their spouse, um, which as we've all seen, I'm sure plenty of medical dramas, when someone is having to make a quick snap decision uh, for their next of kin in a hospital or a situation similar it's extremely stressful and it is extremely difficult because they wouldn't know and that is why it is so important to figure this out pretty early on absolutely and I think it's also worth mentioning that if you are in your mid late early 20s and you're making these decisions for yourself make sure you get those documents properly notarized so that they are legally binding, but then also know that you have the flexibility to change those plans anytime you want. If you change your mind in five years or five minutes, you can legally change it. It's important to have those documents updated and have these conversations regularly. Yes. And you don't have to hire a lawyer to be able to do this. You can write it all up on your own and just go and get an, get the form notarized. Absolutely. There are services online, like I think LegalZoom, legal I think it's called, has an option. But yeah, you can write it out on a series of sticky notes and have it document or notarized if you want. And that's all. Mm -hmm. That's all you really need to make sure that 
anybody will know what, what to do with you whenever you're about to die or if you get into a situation where you're hospitalized and you can't speak for yourself. Yes, I think that's also important is that it's, it's not always when you're dying. It could be things that could keep you alive if that's what you want. If you want to be on anything life-sustaining, if you want CPR, mm-hmm. if you want... Um, if you want a ventilator, any of those things can be outlined in these documents as well. My aunt, um, she went on a first date with her now husband of 10 years. And it's the very first date that they go on and he gets into an accident and has point four trauma to his uh, genitalia. Mm-hmm. And she's in the hospital and it's literally their first date. And they turn to her and they're like, well, what would you like for us to do with this semen? It's going to die in 24 hours and we need to know if we need to store it or to throw it away. Wow. Are you planning on having kids with this man? The (gasps) very first date. Oh no. God, talk about pressure. Right? And they didn't, she didn't know what to do. She was like, um, I, uh, I don't know. (laughs) Oh my God. Are you planning on having kids with this man? What a question. Wow. And now they're married. Mm-hmm. Wow. That could have gone like a whole other direction. Right? <laughs> oh my. <laughs> Can you imagine that that happened on your first date with your... <laughs> I would just start crying be like, I don't know. I don't even know if I like him. We didn't even get to have dinner yet. Get yeah, an exactly. accident. <laughs> but if you have a plan like that involved... It wouldn't have to be the decision for your first date. Right. It could be your own decision. Exactly. So walk me through the history of medicalized death. When did it become the norm? Oh, this is, I am, I'm such a history nut. So I'm very excited for this. It actually started with the Black Death in the Europe in the 14th century. So cool. I, all right, maybe I shouldn't be saying that the Black Death was cool. It was not cool. You're good. <laughs> we're, I think we're all a little bit nerdy here. We can all appreciate a good history tale. So walk us through it, what happened. <laughs> all right. So there were, of course, 75 million people who were dying of death. And there weren't even enough clergymen to help these people to usher in to the next world because a lot of the clergymen were actually dying because of the Black Plague because they had close direct contact with corpses. Okay, course. wait, pause there for a second. So at that time, the clergy was were the ones assisting with death and not doctors, right? Yes. Okay. Mostly clergymen were assisting with death back in the time because doctors weren't really a thing back in that time they were still very much a new thing and this was during the time where if you were even studying medicine you could have been found out by the church and been executed and most of the people who were studying what we know as medical sciences today would have been killed during this time so the clergymen were the ones who were responsible for ushering people into death or to bring them into the the next life. So because of this shortage of priests during this time, the book Ars Morindi, it's called The Art of Dying, emerged in 1450. 
It is absolutely fascinating. And it is a manual to guide someone into the act of dying. And it usually is now what is referred to as a good death, quote unquote. How was this book distributed? Because I know printing presses weren't widely available at the time. So how did people get a copy of the book? They were woodprints and there were about 50,000 copies that were printed. And further editions were even printed later at, um, after 1501. Wow. So this has been, the, when we think about the resources that were used to print 50,000 copies of this, it clearly had a big impact on society and was something of value. I mean, paper alone was not readily available and woodcut pressing was difficult. So yeah. was this something that, pretty much everyone used like a manual in the European world yes okay and it was a printing press so a, a woodcut press so instead of having what you would think a traditional printing press would look like it was these pages delicately carved out by someone so that then they could print it over and over again wow in reverse too, carved in reverse. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> okay. So from this point onward, people were expected to follow these sets of rules that were basically put, laid out during the Black Plague and what was to achieve this good death. And it was usually medicated. What drugs were used during death to make it more comfortable at the time? The two most common for terminally ill patients were pentobarbital and secobarbital. Pentobarbital and secobarbital are not your truest form of a not of medicalized death because it will actually hasten death. And it would be considered more a, of a physician-assisted suicide as opposed to a medicated death. Okay. So keep talking us through what was going on during the Black Death. Well, the Black Death was a plague that hit Europe around the 14th century. It was awful. This was way before we had modern medicine and you would go to your butcher for most medical procedures. And if you had something wrong with you, they would solve the problems with leeches. It was very difficult to control the spread of a very highly, highly contagious plague. And it was resulting in deaths of about two thirds of the population of Europe. Wow, okay. It was... It's called the Black Plague and it's called the Dark Ages for a reason. And it definitely launched us into that sort of dark period. There were people running around the streets, flogging other people. There were people ransacking, looting, digging up graves and pretty much every single debaucherous thing you can imagine was happening during this time. It was so unheard of and a, probably one of the first documented horrific events in our in our history 
And during this time, people were dying so fast that they didn't even have proper ways to bury people. And as I had mentioned before, the clergymen were dying so quickly because they had direct contact with these dying people that they didn't even have priests to continue on death rituals because they were touching these corpses to give them their last rites. It is virtually unheard of to assist a dying person at this time with a medicalized treatment because those were good drugs. Those were fantastic drugs and they wanted to take them for themselves to forget about everything that was going on. And at the end of the day, it goes back to what's the point of medicating a dying person when they're going to die? There's no side effects. This isn't going to help anybody except for them. And at the end of the day, the same results are going to be happening. Death. So what they would usually do is a assisted death, which is just something to hasten and to quicken it so that then usually the loved ones or whoever was around wouldn't have to deal with it. Because at the time, death was a very public event. Your entire family would come around and typically watch you die. And if you were a criminal, you would be in the middle of the streets and they would watch you die. It was basically like Saturday sports and the entire town gathered together to witness and encounter death. What a fun Sunday morning, right? Honestly, I could not care less about football, but I would for sure rather watch a football game than go to one of those. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, also same. It's virtually unheard of in our society today. And usually, if you had the money to be able to afford this, to be able to afford any type of medications to hasten your death, you would probably take it. But it was a luxury. People weren't rich back then, and medications were extremely expensive. So only high-end people who caught the plague would be able to afford a medicalized death. So I had no clue about any of that. That is so interesting. Isn't that cool? That it would just, I mean it kind of makes sense a little bit to just be like, it's inevitable. Let's get this over with to avoid more contagion. I I guess at the time they didn't know that corpses can't, that when you die, all the pathogens in your body die with you. So I guess they didn't know the bodies weren't contagious. So they were just trying to. The bodies were contagious up to a certain point. It depends on, first of all, the type of the plague, as well as what they touched. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is the bubo bubonic plague. If you were to touch the pus from one of those bubos, even after death, post mortem, you could get the plague one hundred percent. Wow, I had no clue about that. Um, yeah, I went into a deep dive about reading about the Black Plague. Nice um, back in high school because my art history teacher spark some weird interest in me mm-hmm. and then I read it later um in the wake of the plague excellent book if anybody's interested I can add that to the show notes for anyone who wants to check it out I'll add a link so fast forward to 2020 and we have so many options for how we want to die most people know of the medicalized options but what is available to people who don't don't like that idea what are other options 
there are multiple different types of options and it's all just a matter of doing some research, sitting down and figuring out what you would want. There are medications that are very easy to even just taking ibuprofen. Really what you need to figure out is if you want to be lucid or non-lucid during this time. So if someone wants that, that happy medium, that oftentimes looks like hospice where you have a trained medical professional to walk with you and your family through the dying process, um, but you can opt out of whatever treatments you do or don't want. Can you talk to us a little bit about what hospice has to offer? Absolutely. Hospice has so much to offer. They are some wonderful people and really getting to know them and gaining a rapport with hospice is probably the most important thing that you can do. Because when a hospice nurse gets to know you, they know what you want and you're able to talk it through with them. And they will give you options with whether you want it non-medicated, medicated, or some sort of happy medium there. The biggest misconception with hospice is that they will do a assisted suicide. This is a very controversial topic and I'm not even going to get into it, but that is not what hospice is there for. And that is not what they're here to do. They're here to ease you into this next transition in life. And it's something that you're just going to have to sit down and talk about. So say someone doesn't want anything to do with the hospital, nothing to do with hospice, is it legal to die at home completely unassisted? I mean, are there repercussions for your family? Not really. You can die pretty much anywhere. And anything and anyone can happen. And nobody can really stop you. And there really aren't any repercussions except for maybe clean up. Yeah, and I think a lot of people get concerned about, you know, how will I get a death certificate? How how will I get any sort of cleanup done? How will the body be removed if I don't have these services like hospice or a hospital in place before? And there are, you know, it can be a community effort. It can be you hiring services to come in, but it is completely legal and within your rights and your family's rights for you to die at home. Exactly. There are systems in place currently that allow you to die wherever and however that you want. Dying at home is definitely an option. Cleaning up at home is definitely an option. It's easier, usually, if you have a plan already laid out and a system and what you would want already in place. But there are multitudes of people who are out there to help and to get you the death certificate. The death certificate is going to happen regardless. There are multiple different people and cops can actually issue a death certificate. So as long as your body is found, you will get a death certificate. Yes, I, th I think that's important to mention. Anything where there's no foul play is essentially legal. Um, if you are concerned about problems for your family or your friends, after you die and you have to call to have the body taken, if that's what you want. I mean, have those, those documents that we were talking about, have them ready to go outlining what you wanted so that there can be a paper trail. It's, I don't think there's many instances where people are going to launch an investigation, but I mean, it's helpful to have these things in place for peace of mind. 
Exactly. But for the most part, that's not really something you have to worry about. It's going to happen regardless, unless you're tragically murdered, and then there might be a little bit more uh, paperwork that needs to be filled out. Yes, definitely a little bit more if there's some foul play involved. But there will still be a death certificate. That's probably going to be one of the first forms they fill out. Yes. And something else to think about is that there is no legal time frame for how quickly your body has to be removed. If you want your body to stay in your home for three or four days, first of all, practically, there are ways to make that happen. And it's also perfectly legal. Just because you're calling to have a death certificate doesn't mean that they have to remove the body. That body can stay in your house for a home funeral or home body preparation. Yes, and it's also very important to note that you do not necessarily have to go through an embalming and go through the entire process. Absolutely, and we have a whole episode on that coming up on what to do after death, what to do with the body, and stay tuned for that one because it's going to be really good. So we've talked about a medicalized birth And we've talked about medications that can be used for a medicalized birth. What are some alternatives to a medicalized birth? So there's a handful of options that are most commonly known. So one is birthing at a birth center with attendants, um, birthing in your home with attendants like a midwife or doula, or going completely unassisted and birthing wherever you like, however you like. If your goal in your birth is to have a completely unmedicalized birth, and that is the most important thing to you, for sure go the free birth route. But if you're you're more concerned about your comfort levels or having access to a hospital if you need it, then maybe you look at a birth center. Maybe you look at a home birth with a midwife. And it is important to understand that state by state, their scope of practice is different. So in one state, At a home birth, you might be able to get oxygen and certain medications, whereas in another state, it might be an issue where after 12 hours of labor, you have to transfer to a hospital or your midwife has to leave. It's all about planning. Figure out your birth plan, figure out where your comfort levels are and what your priorities are in your birth. And there is almost always a way that you can figure out what works best for you. If you are having a home birth and you're super happy and doing great and your midwife is saying you have to transfer this is now outside my scope of practice you can ask the midwife to leave fire the midwife or say thank you I'll take it from here and then you can legally continue your birth at home without the care of a midwife but have those conversations beforehand so you know where her scope of practice begins and ends other than that it is truly customizable to what you as the mother want. I didn't know you could fire a midwife. Oh, hell yeah. That So midwives work for you. And at any point, same with a doctor, you can fire your OB as you are pushing you. And that is informed consent. If they are asking you to do something that you no longer want to do, you can legally fire them and say, I do not consent. (laughs) And legally they have to stop whatever they're doing. Unfortunately, that isn't always honored and that isn't always what happens. Oftentimes doctors, or not oftentimes, in rare cases, doctors can override and say, this is a matter of life and death. And that's also important to know going into a hospital is that doctors sometimes make those executive decisions 
against your will. And while they're not supposed to do that, it, it does happen. So having conversations with your OB and understanding what their standard of care is and their general procedures are is, is important going in. But yeah, you can fire them at any time. Anytime you want them out, just say goodbye and they're gone. Hmm. I guess this is where uh, knowledge is power. Yes, absolutely. We've talked about birth and death being two points on the same circle and that they are intrinsically linked. So when we're talking about a medicalized birth and death, where where's the intersection? Well, I would definitely say where the intersection is, is basically all about just easing pain. That's what it is and paying for that. Whereas where they're different, I would say there's slightly more consequences to a medicalized birth than there would be a medicalized death. Because usually the worst consequence to medication is death. And that's ultimately the goal with a medicalized death. (laughs) So I think this particular topic is not as connected as some of our other ones. I agree. And I think that that's going to be really fun on this podcast is understanding where the intersections are and where they kind of run parallel. So in my brain, when I'm thinking about a medicalized birth and a medicalized death, the intersection is consent and pre-planning and having tough conversations and looking at all of your options, but the execution is going to be totally different. Yes. (laughs) Execution. (laughs) Did did you plan that one? (laughs) I didn't. It just came to me in the moment. Very proud of it though. I will take credit. All my puns are intended. (laughs) Of course they are. (laughs) I, I agree. It's definitely about having uncomfortable discussions that you don't necessarily want to have, but you kind of do if you want this to go the way you want it to. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, uh, we know that death can be a part of birth. And I think going into a birth, it's also important to have a plan. What happens if the mother's life is endangered during birth? Or what if something tragic happens to the baby? We need to have plans going Mm -hmm. in, not just for your ideal, beautiful birth, but what happens if that, that can't be? imagine how stressful it would be for a spouse to have to suddenly make this decision to save either the child's life or the mother's. Yeah. How incredibly difficult that would be to have to make that split second decision and have that much pressure on them. And if you were to already have that discussion beforehand so that then you know automatically what's going to happen and then the pressure is off of them. Exactly. And I think it's also important to note that when you're dealing with a baby during birth, there are different legal implications because in the United States, when until a baby has been born, they are still a fetus. And while the parents do get to make those decisions, there are different laws state by state in Texas, where I am right now, for example, if a baby dies in utero, they can't give you those remains. So you wouldn't get your baby to cremate. It would be a mass cremation with all the other babies who had died. And then like one memorial service that the parents could attend. Oh my God, Texas. Are you kidding me? I am so not kidding you. 
So, I mean, that's something to consider. Like if you know that you have had a, a miscarriage, whether you want to birth that baby at home or in a hospital will, will determine what you get to do with those remains. And most funeral homes will cremate babies for free. So if you, if you know that your baby has died and you want to birth your baby at home, then you might have more flexibility on what to do with your baby's remains. It's an awful thing to think about, but it is so important to understand going into birth and going into the planning phases. And I hate that anyone has to have that conversation. Do your research, have these conversations and cry through them. Be upset, be angry if you don't like how your community handles these problems or these situations write some letters, go bother some Congress people, go find your representatives. I mean, it, you have to work within the system that you exist in, but you sure as hell can change your system if you are not happy with it. Yeah, exactly. All right. So say someone has chosen to have a non-medicalized death, they are in their home, but then the neighbor across the street, the aunt, the mother, the friend, is shrouded in fear and concern, what can you do to ask for support and what can you do to support someone through a non-medicalized death? The first thing that I would say is, why do they care? You're the one dying. If this is how you want to do it, do it. Yes. Autonomy (laughs) right up to the end. (laughs) Exactly. And I mean, at the end of the day, They can't exactly stop you and their opinions very soon here are very much not going to matter. Yes. So I (laughs) guess the support is largely for the The medical staff, the medical staff, and then also for the family who is 100% behind the death plan. How can you support them? So you can definitely have a family that does not necessarily support your death plan, but if you haven't notarized, they don't have any choice but to follow that. And if you have it like actually legally documented how you want to die, they have no choice but to honor it. If you want to have the song Poison on repeat while you die, they will have no choice but to honor that. Really, the biggest thing that you can do is to find someone that you can talk to about having these legal manners and knowing and going into this, hospice nurses are wonderful and they will absolutely help you. There are multiple different types of people that are out there to help you into this transition and they will make sure that your wishes get honored. Death doulas and even lawyers if you need to. This is yes. all you and all your choices. And like I said, if you have that piece of paper officially documented, they will have no choice but to honor that. If you want your face painted in clown makeup because you were the best clown in your entire life and you want it to be pristine and have a makeup artist on hand at all times, you can do that. That is amazing. So little side note story. My great grandmother was a mortician. So she did the makeup of people who had already died. Mm -hmm. And while I was planning out this episode, I was thinking how badly I wished she was here so that I could ask her like, 
you know, what kind of makeup looks like? How did people plan their makeup looks? Did anyone plan them in advance? Or was it always the family who was like, well, this is how she usually wore it. Like, I feel like someone at some point had to do something like, so this is how we're going to be doing it for my funeral. Would you like to practice on me now? So you do actually have to talk to the mortician about, especially with women. You really do have to talk to them. Most of the time, though, they will just do like a quote unquote natural Mm -hmm. look. So the first funeral I ever attended, I was like, this looks weird. This looks really weird. He was really dirty. He doesn't, he looks too put together. And that was not necessarily something that like I could express Mm -hmm. because I wasn't there to plan it. But when the, like, he was just too put together and it was like, no, no, he needs to, he needs to be messy. Can, can I like mess up his hair or something? (laughs) It just felt so weird. But then with my mom, they do ask you if you're going to have an open casket and they'll walk you through the entire steps in the process. You really don't want to practice or have a mortician practice death makeup on you because they have a lot of other stuff that they have to deal with and it's uh-huh. also um not exactly a living body safe gotcha they don't necessarily have to worry about toxins okay so that makeup is staying with you until the worms come yeah pretty much wow that's really and interesting so usually th- it's like super thick yeah because there's other things that they have to cover up not just blemishes or I've heard that the really fun ones are the uh the gruesome ones all right (laughs) moving right along what is something that someone could do to have support and responses for having a non-medicalized birth so depending on which route a mother takes kind of depends I think most women if they say they're birthing in a birth center or having a home birth with a midwife are typically met with, okay, sure, that's fine. Maybe they'll have some concern here or there, but overall it's largely accepted. The more drastic responses I've heard of tend to be around unassisted births where, you know, a neighbor will call an ambulance or call child or Department of Human Services and be like, this woman is planning to have an unassisted birth And I think that's irresponsible. And unfortunately, that is not so unheard of. Squirt breast milk at them. I love that. Pew, pew. Yeah. So Don't make you get out of my face. Exactly. I mean, I think that's like the badass response that everyone deserves. But yeah, for (laughs) a lot of women will just choose not to tell people they're having an unmedicated or non-medicalized birth. And Go about their business and share later. Which has got to be somewhat traumatic, I guess, to be something that you're so proud of and excited for to not be able to speak about it. Yeah, I think that that there's kind of like weighing risk. Like, is it worth hearing everyone's opinion and everyone's horror story of, I know someone's brothers, cousins, best friends, ex-girlfriends, grandma, who if she had a, a birth at home, her baby would have died. And I think we have to understand that there is risk with everything and we're in charge of choosing risk that feels most manageable to us and yeah. really respecting what other people choose for themselves, which mm-hmm. is 
going to be an overarching theme in this podcast is respecting people's choices and their autonomy, whether that is to have a planned C-section with every intervention or to birth at home with no one else there is respecting what people choose for themselves. And I'm sure that the same in death. Stop giving mothers unsolicited advice. They don't want it and they don't care. Thank you. Yeah. A I friend of mine who is really give dying people unsolicited advice because it's like well what can you say to me I'm dying yeah but man people love to give mothers unsolicited advice yeah and like share horror stories what is the purpose I have a friend who's pregnant right now and last week she made a whole Facebook post about I understand everyone's well-intentioned but please don't share your horror stories please don't tell me about everything that went wrong in pregnancy and your birth if I have questions I'll ask and like For heaven's sakes, the fact that she had to go out of her way and make that post just to make it clear that she doesn't want people's opinions blows my mind. Cool. Or um, I just encountered this one the other day. A very popular YouTuber was going out and getting the COVID vaccine. And someone commented on the post and said, please don't get the COVID vaccine. You're going to kill your baby. And I was horrified because... This YouTuber had already been like very public about the fact that she had a miscarriage and it was really hard on her. And this was like her miracle baby. If so, for somebody to just comment and say, you're going to kill your baby is astonishing to me. Absolutely astonishing. I can't believe people sometimes. Are you kidding me? And the fact that so many people do this thinking that they're being helpful or they're doing it well-intentioned, I think, I feel like (laughs) when a woman's pregnant, she just needs to wear a t-shirt that says, I know what I'm doing. I mean, obviously no one should have to do that, but my gosh, is that what it takes to get people to back off? Well, maybe this whole um, quarantine baby thing was a good idea because then you can't go out and get other people's unsolicited right? advice. Right? See, maybe there was some strategy besides there's not much else to do, so let's do this. Um, I mean, the first action steps, of course, I, we've mentioned this last time, is just getting educated. Go and do some research. Figure it out. Read a few books. Write up your plan. That's really the biggest thing is if you come into this with a plan, whether for birth or for death, you got to write it out. You got to figure it out and you got to educate yourself to figure out what you want. Yes, definitely. I mean, same for birth, be educated. Know that if you decide that you want to go completely free birth at home, or if you want to go to the hospital and kind of play things by ear, that is okay to write in a plan. You can write, we will play things by ear and I will make decisions as they arise. That is also acceptable. I think we just need to have these conversations, have them with your your legal next of kin, have them with your partner, have them with your kids. And <laughs> something that I think is super cool that I've heard of some people doing is having death or birth parties where everyone comes together like a a family or a group of friends and they all make their plans together and everyone is in the know and everyone gets a copy of that document and that community accountability of hey there are five other people in the universe who know exactly what I want do not f with me and my plans is really powerful I love that they're strength in numbers 
I wish there didn't have to be, but this is the system we have. This is what we're dealing with. Shout it from the rooftops. Make sure everyone knows what you want and make it happen. Sure. All right. Before we wrap up today, Katarina is going to share a quote with us. So I have recently read this book. It's called The Beauty and Breaking, and it is an incredible book, and I do highly, highly recommend it, and we'll add it to the notes as well. It is by Michelle Harper, and there is this one quote that really stuck with me, and I wanted to read that today. Brokenness can be a remarkable gift. If we allow it, it can expand our space to transform. This potential space that is slight, humble, and unassuming, it may seem counterintuitive to claim the benefits of having been broken, but it is precisely when cracks appear in the bedrock of what we thought we knew that the gravity of what has fallen away becomes evident. When that bedrock is blown up by illness, a death, a breakup, a breakdown of any kind, we get the chance to look beyond the rubble and to see a whole new way of life. The landscape that had been previously obscured by the towers of what we thought we knew for sure is suddenly revealed, showing us the limitations of the way things used to be. Thank you so much, Katerina, and thank you for chatting today and sharing your nearly infinite wisdom on death, and I can't wait to talk to you next week. I wouldn't call it infinite. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, it just keeps coming, so when we hit a stopping point, we'll we'll declare it no longer infinite, but we haven't reached that yet. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I guess we'll do that. And on that note, we will talk to you next week. Bye. In the show notes, we have links to The Wake of the Plague, The Beauty and the Breaking, as well as some resources to help you plan your birth or your death. Thank you so much.